It's spring 1942. The horrors of World War II continue. Former Dutch naval officer Peter Vlaam says goodbye to his wife Hannah for a short trip to meet with Nazi officials who now occupy the Netherlands. But Peter doesn't return as expected. Across the world in Hawaii, Japanese-American David Ikigami endures the suspicions of his non-Japanese neighbors. These worldwide stories are next in Saints, Chapter 28, Our United Efforts. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us today is Matt Heiss, a manager in the Church History Department. And we also have with us Donna Ikigami, a daughter of David Ikigami. Thank you both for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, Matt, perhaps we could start with you. This is your first time on the podcast and you are such an important figure in the Church History Department. Our listeners might not know who you are or what it is that you do, but you play a very important role. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that you do within the Church History Department? I will. And let me thank you for the compliment of being an important figure. How about just an employee in the Church History Department? (laughs) I've been here 35 years, and I've worked in archives acquisitions. That means I acquire records and record interviews for the Church. And most of that time, I've focused on Church history in Europe and Africa. Well, it's great to have you. And we're also grateful that Donna could join us. And it's always a pleasure to have the relatives of characters who feature in the book. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your father and perhaps where you figure in the family and just give us a little bit of insight into what your father was like as a person. Okay. But, you know, before I answer this question, I wanted to say that my father's story wouldn't be complete without his father, Kichitaro or Kei Kigami. He was the first member in the church in our family. He was baptized in 1935 by Edward Clissold and confirmed by President Heber J. Grant. And President Grant was here to create the Oahu Stake, which was the first stake formed outside the continental U.S. And at the same time, he confirmed nine Japanese members. And he said that he had not confirmed so many Japanese during his entire mission in Japan. And thanks to Dr. A.L. Brown, Junius Romney, Edward Clissold, and others, My grandfather joined state savings and loan in Utah as a solicitor, was transferred to Honolulu, and eventually worked his way up to be vice president in Honolulu. He served in many capacities in church, and I find his rags to riches story really amazing considering he only had a fourth grade education and came to the U.S. from Japan without knowing very much English. He wasn't afraid of working hard and took all kinds of jobs, beginning as a railroad worker in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And when Angela first approached us about the project, she thought Grandpa K would be a good fit. But they decided to use my father's story instead when they found out that when he was a teenager, my dad wrote almost daily in his journal. And his entries about his wartime experiences gave us a taste of what life was like in Hawaii during the war. And going back to my dad, he made 95 years old this year and is unable to speak for himself because he has Alzheimer's disease. And it's really a shame because he was always a gifted speaker, and I fear I'm not giving his story justice. Another quick story about him, when he was very young, he was very good at singing and did really well in local Japanese singing contests. And he often told us that when he was a young boy, he sat on President Grant's lap and sang a popular Japanese song. 
It's so great to have you here. I love having this connection of the family and who would know your father and his ancestors better than you. So Donna, can you describe for us and for our listeners the atmosphere in Hawaii in the early years of the war? Sure. The Pearl Harbor attack was devastating not only for the Pacific Fleet and military installations, but it affected civilians too. Dad wrote in his journal on December 7th that there were 34 dead and 94 injured in civilian casualties. In addition to church being canceled, he wrote that a friend's house was burned to the ground. Martial law was declared almost immediately after the attack on December 7th and continued until October 24, 1944. The Army ordered a complete blackout beginning at 6 p.m. on December 7th and maintained a strict curfew. For the first few weeks, all private cars were barred from the highways. And the blackouts continued every night for almost three years. And this meant that all civilian lights, whether bulbs or flames, had to be extinguished at nightfall. And the curfew barred anyone from being on the streets between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. And it was even tougher for Japanese because they had to be in their homes by 8 p.m. And one thing I discovered recently was that the army suspended civil courts and instituted military courts in their place. This deprived Hawaii residents of their constitutional rights to due process and jury trials. And all Japanese language schools were permanently closed and other schools were temporarily closed. Dad wrote in his journal that he wasn't able to return to high school until February 2nd, 1942. Other inconveniences included food and gas were rationed. So dad and his family had a victory garden and raised their own chickens. Civilians had to dig bomb shelters. Newspapers had to be licensed to operate and no publication was allowed to be printed in any language other than English. All telephone calls are monitored. All mail was read and censored and everyone older than age six was fingerprinted, registered and required to carry military IDs. So during World War II, US martial law was declared only for the territory of Hawaii. Martial law was not enforced for any of the other states or territories. So some have said that the army disregarded the constitution and set up a military dictatorship. So I found that it's likely that depriving Hawaii residents of fundamental constitutional rights during the war fueled the case for bringing the territory of Hawaii into statehood in 1959. That is fascinating. And I can only imagine that for your father and for your family, and for all of Hawaii's residents, that that would have been a really scary time and perhaps feeling quite limited in terms of what they're able to do because of all of these restrictions. Yes, definitely. Well, in the book, we cover some of these issues that local residents are experiencing. And I love when we talk about the Kiave Corps and your father's involvement in that. And I wonder if you could tell us how did your father look back at his time with this group? Well, in his journal, he wrote that they put up barbed wire poles at Diamond Head. And from what I read in his journal, he seemed pleased that he was able to do his part for his country. And throughout his life, he was always willing to serve others in whatever way he could, whether he was helping people with family history research or volunteering at the rehab hospital of the Pacific. So it kind of fits well into his persona of wanting to serve and to help others. And I have a question, Donna. How did Hawaiians of other ethnic backgrounds view or treat your family during the war? Well, for the most part, everyone was treated unfairly under martial law. And since Japanese made up 37% of Hawaii's population at the time, it wasn't possible to incarcerate or transport almost 160,000 people anywhere. 
Japanese residents had established themselves in Hawaii as business owners, teachers, and community leaders. And without them, Hawaii's economy would have collapsed. And our family was fortunate that Japanese in Hawaii were treated better than the Japanese living on the mainland. There were many Japanese in Hawaii who were discriminated against because their loyalty to the U.S. was suspected. However, less than 1% of ethnic Japanese in Hawaii were interned or removed to the mainland. In comparison, more than 110,000 Japanese were forcibly evacuated and incarcerated on the mainland. And I just wanted to mention a quick thing about the 442nd Regimental Combat Team and 100th Infantry Battalion. There were thousands of young Japanese men who really wanted to prove themselves as loyal Americans and went on to become legendary as the most highly decorated during World War II. And although dad did not serve on the battlefield with the Gopher Broke Battalion, he completed his service with the Army honorably. It's really amazing to hear these stories from you, again, from someone so close to your father. I just can't get over this amazing connection. Oh, thank you. I guess something to highlight here is that you mentioned how people of Japanese descent in Hawaii were treated better than those on the mainland of the United States. But how did his church membership feature into this? Was this a cause of any persecution for him? Or how did his church membership help or hinder him during the war? Well, I think it was a blessing for him because their membership in a Christian church originating in America, an association with American leaders of the church probably shielded them from suspicion of being potentially dangerous. That's a really interesting point. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how your father's story continues and what are some of the things he perhaps goes on to do in the years following the war. Well, after he graduated from high school, he attended the University of Hawaii until he was drafted into the Army. He was stationed at Schofield Barracks in Wahiawa as a pineapple soldier, and this means his military service was in office headquarters on Oahu. After the Army, he continued his education thanks to the GI Bill, graduating from George Washington University and attending law school there for about a year and a half. Then he returned to Honolulu and received a call to serve in the Japanese mission. And Dad has always loved missionary work and the Japanese people. And I have、um, a couple stories about his mission. One story he would love to tell everybody was about his first mission was when he met the Hojo family. One of the sons, Katsumi Hojo later worked for the parent company for Seiko Watches. Seiko had offers from the church and the Chinese government to purchase valuable real property next to the Tokyo Temple. And even though Mr. Hojo did not join the church, he had a favorable impression of the church because of his relationship with my father. Based on Mr. Hojo's recommendation, Seiko decided to sell the property to the church in 2010 instead of to China. And this acquisition was instrumental in, in enlarging the facilities adjacent to the Tokyo Temple. And when dad returned to Hawaii from his first mission, he earned a living doing business in insurance and real estate. He was active in various community organizations and had many callings in the church, including serving as a bishopric counselor, high council member, temple worker, and sealer at the Laie Temple and Kalihi Family History Center director. In addition to his proselyting mission in the 1950s, He also served two missions in Japan with my mother, Elsie. They served in the Tokyo Temple and they were the first public affairs missionaries in Japan. I also wanted to add that we now have three generations of missionaries in our family, most of whom served in Japan. Wow. 
that is amazing to see such a legacy of service that starts, I suppose, with your grandfather and your father and aunt and others have carried that torch and passed it on through the subsequent generations. I suppose one question for you is that it must have been difficult when the country from which your ancestors have come from goes to war with the country that your father was living in at the time, you know, in the United States. Yes. And I imagine there was perhaps some tension there. Naturally, there's this government suspicion, there's this concern that there is going to be traitors or people that are going to work with the Japanese. But how did this period of loyalties being tested, how did that affect your father's relationship to the United States? Well, he was born in the United States in Utah. So he was always a patriotic American. I believe it was in that Deseret News article that Angela sent me that showed my grandfather's reaction to when he found out that Pearl Harbor was being attacked. And you could tell that he was really torn, that he loved this country, and yet his homeland was attacking the country that he was living in today. It is one of those just fascinating, almost a paradox, where you're putting yourself in that situation and trying to reconcile how would you handle that? But clearly, they had their attachment, as you've said, to the country that David was born in and that they were living in. It's amazing to see that they were able to find ways to contribute, despite the fact that others might have viewed them with suspicion. Hmm. But you know, they were really fortunate because although they suffered with the martial law situation, they were never singled out by the military or territorial government. It's probably because they didn't meet the criteria for being a security threat. And the people who were suspected were generally Japanese Buddhists and Shinto priests, consular agents, and language school officials. And it seemed like being a Buddhist while being an American was a red flag. And it was also not good to be considered a kibei. Kibei were citizens born in the United States who spent time for education or other purposes in Japan and then returned to live in Hawaii. And fortunately, they didn't fit into either categories. So I think that that helped them out. Well, thank you again, Donna, for describing such a difficult time. And I'm just so inspired by your father's commitment to the gospel, too. And it, it really is beautiful, this legacy that he's created that you described with your family. So thank you again. We want to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the other characters we read about in this chapter. And Matt, this first scene that we open up the chapter with we read about Peter and Hannah Vlam, and it's pretty traumatic. The Vlams lost a daughter the year before, and then suddenly Peter is taken away as a prisoner of war. Why do you think Peter was arrested? Can you help us understand that a little bit better? Peter had served as an officer in the Dutch military, and the Nazis were rounding up Dutch military personnel, kind of like a preemptive strike to avoid any chance of organized resistance, military people who might know how to fight back as opposed to just citizens. Well, it seems that it took everyone by surprise either way. It's difficult to imagine how Hannah and her family would have felt in that one sudden swoop, her husband and provider and her support is just ripped away from her. I was just wondering, can you give us a little bit of context around the state of the church in the Netherlands at this time? That's a great question. 
And I did a little bit of background research, and here's what I found. The first branch of the church was organized in the Netherlands in 1862. And I hope that as I talk about some of these things, you'll get a sense of how well-established the church was in the Netherlands by the time Peter and Hannah are alive and dealing with his arrest. The Netherlands became its own mission in 1864. The Book of Mormon was translated into Dutch in 1887. The Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price were available in Dutch by 1911. Certainly things slowed down. The missionaries were evacuated from Europe for World War I. And then came the Global Depression and the rise of Nazism in World War II. And things kind of slowed down. But despite the slowdown, the Dutch Latter-day Saints celebrated the Diamond Jubilee of the First Baptism in 1936 and actually commissioned and placed a monument at the place where the first baptism occurred. The first meeting house ground was broken for that in Rotterdam in 1937. North American missionaries were evacuated in 1939, just prior to the war. But the church was not a brand new thing in the Netherlands by the time Peter and his family are there dealing with their afflictions. Well, thank you, Matt. It's good to know a little bit more about the setting in which the Vlaams were living and serving in the church at the time. And clearly, war of any description brings it hardships, difficulties, uncertainties. Could you tell us a little bit about the Nazi occupation? How was this German occupation affecting Latter-day Saints, those not of our faith? How was this affecting Dutch people in general? Here's a little bit of background or context. I believe that the Dutch government was aware that Germany was becoming very militaristic. They tried to negotiate to preserve their country, to not have to have the Nazis invade. Apparently, even the Queen of the Netherlands, she might have gone on the radio or something and told the people that they had negotiated not peace, but a no invasion kind of thing. And then the Nazis attacked. And after only five days, they were the occupying army. So the Blitzkrieg entrance into the Netherlands. And, you know, I guess Peter's story is just part of that, that people lost their civil rights. Didn't matter who they were. They could just be arrested, put in prison because they were suspected of perhaps being an enemy to the Third Reich. And it's interesting that you should talk about the restriction on civil liberties. Donna just a moment ago was telling us the same thing there. And I guess that's one of the real warnings we see in scriptures and we have from prophets is about war. It's about conflict because it seems inevitably, both spiritually and physically, there is this pressure that comes in these states of conflict, whereby maybe you can't choose to do things that you'd like to do or your abilities to worship or to act freely are, are taken away. And there are spiritual traps, which might be things like animosity or hatred of others, which can cause hard hearts to form. And so in two very different settings, we see moments of real exception, of real constriction. And I guess it just, again, highlights the follies of war and the pitfalls of conflict. And you know what? Just to build upon that, I served a mission in Germany, 76 to 78. 
And I could still run into older people who had experienced the war. And when you talk about hard-heartedness, a lot of them would say to us, I don't believe in God anymore. Where was he when the bombs were falling? Where was he when the Russians were invading? And how could the British and Americans pray for victory to the same God that the Germans were praying to? It's just kind of a very hard thing to deal with, which makes me appreciate Peter even more because here's a guy who is going through all of these afflictions, keeping his covenants, and not doubting, not letting his heart get hardened. You're right, because if anything, it seems as if he comes alive in terms of he seems so energetic in sharing the gospel. He seems so committed, even when he's being restricted, to find a way to do it. It's incredibly inspiring. It's incredibly rewarding to read of individuals such as David, such as Peter, who are finding ways to do the best they can in situations that are maybe not ideal. And we're so fortunate to have so much information about him. Matt, I'm just wondering, how did we find all of this information? Where are these sources coming from? Peter was a record keeper. And in the church archives, we've got his papers here. They were cataloged and described in such a way that the researchers and authors who are writing the saints could find it, use it, and it becomes part of the narrative. And James, help me out with this one. Isn't one of his daughters still alive here in Salt Lake City or, or somewhere close? And you could talk to her. And so you get the archival record source, and then you get a living source, kind of like Donna. You're right. Their daughter, Grace, who's mentioned, is still alive and living in Salt Lake. And we were able to, to interview her. And she's just like her father, a record keeper gathered and preserved the stories. And I guess that's a lesson for us all as well. In the history of the church, it's vital that we don't just keep our own records, but we seek to preserve all records that relate to the dealings of God with his children. And there are many different ways that we can do that. But in this case, we would all be poorer if we didn't have, for example, the records about Peter and his experiences as a prisoner of war, or the likes of, of David, who kept a journal and has passed on stories to his family. These are just two really good examples of why it's important to keep a record. And from these records, Matt, what do we know about Peter Vlam's conversion to the church and his service in the church? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I actually went into a database that I have access to and just doing a name search on him, I put together just a little portrait of how active he was and how committed he was to the gospel. So I believe he was baptized in 1910, but in 1919, he receives the Aaronic priesthood. And a year after that, 1920, he's ordained an elder in the Melchizedek priesthood. It just so happens that he blessed and baptized all of his children. That was a little bit not so common back then when the American missionaries, you know, who were all Melchizedek priesthood holders, would be the one to bless and baptize their children. Peter was deployed to Indonesia as a member of the Dutch Navy, and on his way home, came through Salt Lake City and was sealed in the temple in 1939. So again, you get a sense of how committed he was to the principles of the gospel. And then just one final thing I found in the records, that there were a lot of men 
who were ordained to the priesthood, to the Melchizedek priesthood in the 1930s and 40s by Peter. Some of that may be that there weren't American missionaries, but I think it was Peter was such a powerful figure that he would have been sought after to bestow the priesthood. It's just interesting to know a little bit more about a character's story. And in Saints, we could write many, many Saints books if we were trying to drill down right to each person's story. Each of these individuals deserve a book in their own right. We do, obviously, in this chapter, have some excellent detail about Peter's time in the prisoner of war camp. I wonder if you could tell us what were some of the risks of being caught sharing the gospel or trying to preach to the prisoners, what kind of punishments might he have been subject to? Death, I think. Had the Nazi guards felt like there was a whispering campaign going on, I don't think they would have stopped and asked, hey, are you talking about church or are you talking about escape? I think they just would have pulled a trigger and said, we're not going to deal with this. So I think Peter really put his life on the line to preach the gospel. As he was in these very difficult circumstances and still teaching the gospel, there were some men that were taught by him that accepted the gospel. Will you just tell us about some of these men that were taught and what happened to them? Where did their lives lead? That's an awesome question. Let me focus on one man named Paul Yonkees, who was a prisoner with Peter and was taught by Peter, accepted the gospel would have been baptized after the, he was released from prison, and who later became the first stake president in the Netherlands. Talk about planting a seed and then watching it grow. I just think that that's an amazing example of, uh, and, and planting a seed not in fertile soil, in soil of challenge, of affliction, of potential death, and watching that seed grow. It's truly incredible. Peter's story is amazing. And he is obviously a prisoner of war in some pretty hard conditions and difficult circumstances. But we know he wasn't the only Latter-day Saint prisoner of war. I wonder, Matt, if you could tell us why do you think it was worth including in the book over others? To me, that's a very important question. And let me answer it in two ways. My own personal reaction to the story. And then I want to draw a historical parallel. First, my personal reaction. Here's a guy in prison doing member missionary work where he could have been shot down for doing that. I look at my own life and I ask myself, am I doing member missionary work where I don't, when I'm not in prison, I'm not behind a barbed wire? A painful question to consider. I also think of what it took to endure and to endure well. So I think of myself and my challenges, certainly nothing like a prisoner of war camp. And I think, well, how often do I murmur and complain and wish my situation was different? And here's Peter. I'm sure he wished he was home. I'm sure he wished he wasn't in prison, but he's making the most of it. And really, in a sense, magnifying his calling as a Latter-day Saint to preach the gospel. So personally, I'm inspired in both those ways, or maybe it's one and the same. But then let me talk about something else. And I did a little bit of research on this and went and got a quote from Gordon B. Hinckley, who gave this as a part of a talk in April 1968 General Conference. Prior to that conference, Elder Hinckley back then, he wasn't president, was Elder Hinckley, 
had been to Vietnam and had talked to the American soldiers there. We had a few missionaries there at the time, believe it or not, in South Vietnam. And he came back, and this is what he said. And let me read this. This is four or five sentences, but I want to tie this back to Peter's experiences in prison as a prisoner of war. Elder Hinckley said this, I seek only to call your attention to that silver thread, small but radiant with hope, shining through the dark tapestry of war, namely the establishment of a bridgehead, small and frail now, but which somehow, under the mysterious ways of God, will be strengthened, and from which someday shall spring forth a great work affecting for God the lives of large numbers of our Father's children who live in that part of the world. Of that I have a certain faith. Now, as I think about Peter, I think that he is something like this silver thread woven through the dark tapestry of World War II, that in preaching the gospel, he radiated hope and gave people hope despite the darkness, despite the oppression. And this small and simple thing that he did bore powerful fruit into the future with Paul Yonkees and others who became leaders of the church in the Netherlands. And so I love this Gordon B. Hinckley quote talking about finding purpose even in the darkest of times. And I think that applies to Peter in the prisoner of war camp. Thank you for drawing that parallel. I thought that was a really beautiful connection. Thank you. So Matt, unfortunately, we don't get to come back to Peter in this volume of Saints. What can you tell us about what Peter Vlam goes on to do? How does his story end? Yeah, so just a few quick facts. In 1949, he leaves the Netherlands, immigrates to the United States, to Utah. He dies in 1957, so he's only really here for about eight years. It was kind of common back then for those Europeans who had experienced World War I, the chaos that happened between the wars, World War II, the horrors of that war, to say, you know what, I don't want to be in Europe anymore. I'm going to go someplace that's not going to be bombed to smithereens or whatever. So he and his family immigrated. But during those years, before he passed away, he actually worked to translate the temple ceremony into Dutch. So here he was, once again, magnifying his calling, using his gifts, and blessing people beyond himself. And how thrilled he must have been to find out that Europe would have got a temple and to have known that the temple ordinances would be available to Europeans without having to cross an ocean. Yeah, that's right. And maybe from the spirit world, he is very thrilled to have a temple in the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't doubt that, but that's just me. It's not doctrine, and it's not history. It's hope. Well, Donna and Matt, we'd love to ask both of you, can you tell us how you felt or reacted to the stories in this chapter? Sure. They were all inspiring, but I was impressed, especially with the courage of Helmuth Hubner to speak the truth at the risk of his life and excommunication. It is rare to come across a person with that kind of moral courage and integrity. I'm going to go to Donna's part of the chapter and just say that I'm impressed that her ancestors were able to endure racism and thrive 
do something amazing with their lives, serve in the church, get educated, work in responsible positions, build the church, endure to the end. You know, there's a lot of racism going around right now, and it's very damaging, such a burden to bear. And I think there's a cool story in that. Well, Matt and Donna, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure hearing from your personal experiences and also your expertise. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And I'm grateful that I got to be on this program with Donna. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.